kind of uh, takes us to the conclusion, at least for now, of our biblical counseling conversation that we've had going on. This is week five. Uh, this, is, this is no conclusion, ultimately. I'm trying to get to a place where we can kind of stop. Uh, there's, there's a wealth more, and I can imagine that on the receiving side of this, it feels like there's a wealth more, and I can affirm that feeling inside of you. There's a wealth more. Um, but I do, want to, uh, I do want to take you through the process of change. And so tonight in our case study, which I've been trying to bring one each week for you, uh, we're going to be walking through it slowly, and we're going to kind of pick it apart. We're going to ask questions along the way, and I'm going to take you through seven steps of that process. Do I have the flyer? Did I give a handout to you at this point? Okay, so the handout is either on the back of my notes or it's in my office. So, uh, Michael, can you just head into my office real quick and grab the flyers there? They've. Sorry for that. There'll be just a second. Um, so while we're doing that, I'll uh, just kind of walk through an introduction with you and, and share with you uh, a counseling opportunity that I had at Grace Community Church. There was an issue between a husband and wife regarding the care of their son, young little boy, uh, no more than three years old. And mom was frustrated about dad's bedtime routine, dad's bedtime law. Mom was, mom was frustrated. And I had to put to the question to her in her frustration about her husband's practices with uh, the son uh, and his bedtime routine, is your husband a reasonable man? Just that question. Is your husband a reasonable man? And it was crickets. It was silence that dominated the room as we waited for an answer for the question, is your husband a reasonable man? I'm not sure about you, but if we take this to a court of law and I ask the judge about these two people that profess Christ, I'm going to get an answer from the judge that this man is a reasonable man. But here I'm sitting with a a, a Christian wife and she's unable to respond quickly that I'm dealing with a man who I believe is reasonable. You know, it was at that moment, right at that moment, that I could see a couple of pieces that were needing some serious conversation. You could see where she was at, where she was at in her walk with Christ, where she was at in her sanctification process. And you've got on your, on your sheet there, on the diagram, on the front page, you've got some pictures, okay? So if you can see this wife, she's on the spiral, she's on the downward spiral because they're in talking about troubles and challenges, And she's walking down the left side of that spiral with bad ideas and bad theology and bad patterns and habits and practices that are leading to pain and struggle in her life. And one of them is that she can't answer this question. But what does it mean that she can't answer this question? Is your husband reasonable? What does it mean? Can you think through, what what does this mean? What What does it mean that she can't answer the question? Is your husband reasonable? It's a very simple question. Well, what it means is that she's believing lies in her head about her husband. She's believing lies in her head about her husband. She thought low of the man that God had provided and God's ability to transform her husband. She thought high of her own ideas and her own values for what her husband is, should be, and could be. She thought very high about her own ideas. And in fact, she thought so high about her own ideas that in this opportunity to answer the question so quickly, she revealed that she was a woman who liked control. She was a woman who liked to be the provider for the son and thought that she knew best how to handle something as simple as the bedtime routine, where I've got a reasonable man who's a Christian 
who's just trying to be a dad sitting in front of me, and I think that he should get a shot, a chance, to lead his child through a bedtime routine. She's on that downward spiral. She's frustrated. She needs to jump across to the other side and make a choice that honors the Lord and moves up. That arrow across the bottom there that connects those two spirals, that's repentance. That's crossing, that's turning from the path that I was going and that's turning to the path that I need to go to follow God. If you were to track her on the, on the heart of God worldview, she's at a decision point right now. She's at a decision point and she needs to follow Christ through the process of peace to bring God glory because she's not bringing God glory currently in her relationship with her husband. And so she needs to. But the only way to do that is to make a choice that honors God and goes right to God. And she hasn't been able to do that. She needs to go through the process of peace. Turn your sheet over. On the back of it, I want you to take your hand and stick it right on the, right on the die. Just stick your hand right on there and hold your pen on the other side and trace your palm out with your fingers on the back side of the page. Just go ahead and take your pen and just trace, your, trace around your fingers on the back side of your page. The process of peace is five parts. And your hand is a good place to have a reminder put for you. The little one on the outside is confession. Confession. And what this wife needed to do was to confess. She needed to confess these things before the Lord. She wanted control. She wanted control. She wanted it more than she wanted a, a, a righteous relationship with her husband. She wanted control. The next thing that she do, does is, is repent. So it's confession and then repentance. That's that, that's that ring finger. It's that, that covenant finger. The next thing that you do after you've confessed and you've repented, the difference between the two being that the first one says, this is what I've done wrong, and the second one saying, I never want to do that again. The third one, the high point in the process of peace, this is what Christ affords us, right, is the process of peace. He is our peace, and so this is the process of peace that he has afforded. He, he has afforded us by his de uh, death on the cross, making that sacrificial payment for us. So the high point then is forgiveness. Forgiveness, that's the high point. That's that centerpiece. And, and if you've sought forgiveness and you understand forgiveness, the depth of the forgiveness of God, then you can move past forgiveness and you can start to begin to restore your relationship with God. That's the, that's the pointer finger, the worker finger, the doing finger. Because restoration is going to take some doing. So that's restoration. And then the, the thumb, the thumb really then is kind of, you know, this opposable digit that makes us different than everything else. Well, it's the one thing that makes us Christians different than everybody else too. And that's that we choose to obey God. We choose to obey God. That's the thumb. And so this is really the process of peace that God has given to us through Christ to restore relationships. And so when you look at that worldview on the page, on the front of your page there, that's what this wife that was in counseling with me, she needed. I knew where she was at in life. I could see where she was at in life. She needed to return to the foot of the cross and confess her sins and repent of her own desire, her own pride even, for control of this relationship. And to think through what would be a biblical response. Well, that was a that was a joy uh, to counsel these folks. They're 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 blessed friends actually, and uh, doing very well, doing very well with the Lord even today. This is a lesson that they that they learn and they march through as part of their sanctification process. And, and I want to take you through now a case study of Heath, Heath Lambert. 
Heath Lambert is the head of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. He, he's leaving that position soon to be the pastor of a church, a large church in Florida. And Heath was meeting with Clark and Sarah. Clark and Sarah. And I want to introduce them to you tonight as we walk through their, their story, their life. Clark and Sarah met in high school. They were high school sweethearts. They got married in college, both believers. They were both educated, well-educated, and, and both fully employed. They're living a comfortable life. They have a great personal relationship with one another. They're the model marriage in the church. They can't have kids. They've understood that, that they have some uh, difficulty in conception. So they've been waiting patiently, but it's been about five years or so. Ultimately, Sarah does conceive. She conceives. She gives birth to a baby named Zoe. And Clark and Sarah, they're ecstatic parents. They're excited about this, this time and this phase in their life. Everything seems to be going fine. Two weeks after the delivery of the child, two weeks later, Heath gets a phone call. Clark calls and says, Pastor Heath, do you have a second? Do you have a second? Can we come in and talk today? We need to talk today. And I'm not sure how many times you think about a pastor and how busy he is. We always will make time. And that's what he did. He was more than willing to make time. Are we, as pastors, are you, as fellow brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, are you equipped to handle what comes next? Well, in the biblical process of change, I believe that you are equipped. And that the steps to become equipped, we're going to walk through tonight to further equip you to be able to answer even this phone call, even this situation, that you don't get freaked out and you don't get scared, that you really understand that, as Solomon had put it, everything under the sun has been done. It, it's, it, the Lord has made sense of it all, and we walk in newness of life in Christ. This is what I want you to see tonight, the biblical process of change. Okay? And you've got seven steps there in your outline, and we're going to walk through all of these seven essentials for biblical counseling. These are seven essentials for biblical counseling, to better equip you in serving God his church, and all the others that you'll run into in your life. There is no formal order. I really want to stress that. There's no formal order. Okay? I didn't pull this out of a textbook and giving it to you. I, I jumped into this case and I thought, hey, look, I'm just going to walk through the biblical process of change. So don't think about this linearly or even chronologically. That's not the way that this process works. There's no formal order. I told you before, that's not a cookie-cutter model for biblical counseling. Just don't take this pattern and slap it over the next person you come into in life. It doesn't work that way. Each case is unique, and each case is, you've got to respond to it in a custom, tailor-made way. Okay? For Heath, or you or I, to be able to help Clark or Lisa at this point, you need to know essential number one in the process of, of biblical change. No sin. You must know sin. Because all sin. You can turn in your Bibles to Romans 3.23. You know what it says. What did God get from Adam and Eve in the garden paradise that he called Eden? What did God get from them? God got rebellion from Adam and Eve. Man, who was made in the very image of God, decided to create his own kingdom. He was not satisfied with the perfection of God's kingdom. And through the disobedience of the one man, Adam came sin and even death into the world. It is for this reason that Paul says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So a question. Do you get surprised at the nature and the depth of sin? 
Do you get surprised at the nature and depth of sin? Does the size of the wickedness and ugliness and selfishness of sin, does it shock you? You know, as a biblical counselor, sometimes there might be an opportunity to marvel, really, at someone's choices. But rightly understood, understood the, the Bible means that when I have a right understanding of the Bible, there's no longer shock value, really, to, to the depth of depravity of sin. There's really no longer shock value. What does Solomon say? We just mentioned this a second ago. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Also, I know my own heart. And I know the wickedness that my own heart and my own mind contain. And without Jesus Christ, I would be the guy on the front line of the Drudge Report or the newspaper tomorrow morning. I would be the guy you'd be reading about without Christ. So all sin, all people sin. And sin is ugly. It's gross. It's pervasive. It's the order of the day, okay? It's par for the coat, the, the course of life. The, the soup du jour of life is sin. Would you like to have a cup of sin with that? That's, that's the order of life. Turn to Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3, 15, 16, 17. Sin is the reason for all illness and sicknesses of the world. Pain and suffering are par for the course of this world. Every, ever since the fall of man, the women will have pain in bearing children. They will desire to rule over their husband. That's what you see there, right? In those passages, look at 16 and look at 17. She will desire to rule over her husband. This will not go well for the marriage relationship. Look at the man. Look at the man. He's going to be tucking himself away into toiling after the ground, just grinding away at the ground to try to figure out how to feed his self and to feed his family. To get the same amount of the, of the product, it would now take more work let alone he goes home and his wife is trying to rule over him. Do you, do you see the process there in Genesis 3? Do you see how wicked and how depraved the, the world comes as a result of the, the sin that Adam and Eve produced? To the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. That doesn't sound pleasant. 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. By thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. That doesn't sound fun. And that's the order of the day out here. That's the way life works, right? It's good to be mindful of these things. We need to have a biblical understanding that sin is not good and it's pervasive and it's everywhere. We need to consider also three reasons for illness and sickness. You know, as we're looking at sin and we're thinking about sin, what was the yield of sin? Death, right? Well, on the way to death, there's all this pain and struggling and suffering, and pain and struggling and suffering. That's what we get. That's what comes with this flesh and this earth that we live in. And before we charge into Clark and Sarah's problem, their challenge, I, I really want to lay this foundation of sin and of illness and sickness and pain and suffering down as well. So there's three reasons for illness, okay? The first reason for illness is Genesis 3. You're sitting there looking at the text. Genesis 3, general, general illness is the first illness. General illness. The ground was cursed. Pain was sent where it was never meant to be, in, in the act of childbirth. Conflict was now a regular part of the central human relationship, marriage. Conflict, just guaranteed. It's just part of what's going to happen there. Nothing operated in perfection any longer. You think about the common cold, cancer, athlete's foot, 
that's all Genesis 3, okay? <laughs> it's all right back there in the garden. This is where this stems from. But you know what's interesting when you think about Genesis 3? How affected was man's cognitive ability? Man's cognitive ability remained intact because he was still expected to respond to God that he would repent of his sin. But now the attending circumstances of his life are are broken and painful continually. That's what he gets. Okay, the second one of the reasons for illness. If we have just a general understanding that pain is out in the world and it's going to come and get you, then you're not afraid of it. You understand. I'm going to walk out the door and car accident. I'm going to walk out the door and whatever. Life's going to have pain for you right outside the door. The next is personal sin. Personal sin. And there's two things, there's two fashions that personal sin, I would even venture to say three. It's safe to say three, but we'll just go with two. Sinful actions and sinful responses. So there, Clark put a call into Heath, and Heath was working. Heath had been busy all day. Okay? So what happens if Heath gets frustrated and angry at this phone call? and this appointment that just showed up on his day at the end of his day, and he slams his fist on his desk. He didn't get his, he didn't get his work done. He's, he's, he just knows he's going to chew up another hour, two hours of his time, whatever this immediate emergency phone call is. What happens if he slams his phone on the desk? Well, there's going to be a physical consequence for his physical action, right? He might break his hand. Or what happens if he breaks the phone? Right? The, the, now we have to pay for a new phone. Okay, so there's a physical action and a physical consequence that comes with that action. But there's also the opportunity for sinfully responding as well. You know, slamming his fist on the desk is one thing, but now what happens if he goes home and he's got a broken pinky and he doesn't tell his wife? Or he's too embarrassed to say anything about it and just kind of hides it for a while, turns black and blue. And then just goes into the work and works longer because he doesn't want to explain to his wife that he got so angry that he slammed his fist down on the table. Well, now you've got shame and guilt starting to brew up in his heart. Would you say that he responded biblically or unbiblically to slamming his fist on the table? Unbiblically, right? So sinful responses are going to cause pain. They're going to cause guilt. They're going to cause shame. In addition to physical actions. He was going to... What what would heap up inside of Heath for lying? The guilt, the shame. These would be the fruit of unbiblical responses. So you've got that. So then if you've got sin, personal responses, you've got... Um, sinful behaviors, sinful actions. I would even go so far as to make the third point in this, and that's you can sinfully think about something in your heart. Your, your mind, just the thoughts in your mind and in your heart, let alone what comes out of you. What's going on inside of you is going to cause you pain as well. Number three, though, number three, if we've got sinful responses, if we've got general sin that's going to create illness, general pain, number three is this. God gives illness. God gives illness intentionally. Turn to Psalm 119.71. There is such a thing as divine disasters. And you ask the question, could this be true? Would a good God pass out illness and suffering? Why? You know that James says, you know he says, well, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will bring about perfection, such that you are not lacking in any way. God wants this for you. Further, you know that Hebrews 12 says that God disciplines those whom he loves. 
Did you consider the contrary in that verse as well? In verse 8 it says, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You want God's punishment. How's that? You want him to punish you. You want to know that he is near. And you know he's near when he's calling on you to trust in him. So you're looking at Psalm 119.71. It makes sense then for the psalmist to say this. He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. You know, he goes even further than this, though, in offering clarity that God is the one who provides illness. And he says in Psalm 119.75, if you look at that verse, he says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. God is the one who ultimately gives illness, gives suffering, gives pain. God afflicts those whom he loves. Why? Why would he do this? To continue to conform you to the image that was most well-pleasing to him, the image of his son. Because none of the suffering that you face or experience, or for that matter, anybody else will face or experience in this life, comes remotely close to the suffering that Christ did on the cross. Nothing comes close to that. We have a Savior who understands all suffering because he was made to suffer the absolute most. Sin is terrible and it is resident within you. It's painful continually. And as we live in these bodies of death, we have to contend with sin regularly. It's produced in these three sources. General illness, sin-produced illness, and God-given illness. Therefore, the counselor must be unfazed by sin in any shape, size, or color. We must be unfazed. So here it comes. What was the challenge for Clark and Sarah? What was their pain or illness? We get back to our story. What, what pain or illness caused them to need counseling right now? Well, remember, they just had a baby two weeks prior. And here's Clark. He's on the phone with Heath, and he's saying, Pastor, we need to see you. Can we come in and talk today? It seems the case that the tyranny of the urgent is usually headed up with sin and pride. So what could it be that this couple is struggling with? So they show up at Heath's office, and Sarah is visibly exhausted, physically exhausted. Her eyes are bloodshot. Her face is puffy. Something is just extremely wrong with her physically, personally. They didn't have Zoe with them, the baby, the two-week-old. They found someone else to take the two-week-old. Clark is holding his wife's hand, and he looks just scared. He says to them, what's going on, guys? How can I help you? They've been members at his church for a little while. They moved over from a previous church that had light and weak doctrine, and they wanted some more solid teaching, and they've begun to find it at this church. Sarah begins to speak. She begins talking about these first few weeks with Zoe. They've been hard. She hasn't slept much. She begins to break down and begins to sob as she starts to share with Heath. She says that Zoe cries a lot. Zoe needs constant attention. And nothing seems to soothe this baby's crying. Heath goes further to finding out Sarah had not slept 
more than a couple of hours per night for nearly three weeks. She was exhausted, stressed, sad, even angry. She began to open up and confess further through tears. She started to resent Zoe. She felt no connection with Zoe. Sarah missed her old life. She missed the life where she would come home and there was a rhythm to it with regard to Clark and their relationship. She was missing that and the, the rhythm, the quiet evenings, the quietness of an apartment without a baby. Her thoughts had become so bad, so bad, that she had thoughts about killing Zoe. She recalled wanting to pick her up and throw her against a wall to get the crying to stop. Staring into the crib at night a couple times, she would begin to fantasize about throwing Zoe. And today, what happened today that blew this thing wide open? Well, there she was standing in the kitchen cooking dinner holding a knife when she began planning a scenario of slamming Zoe on the floor and slitting her own wrists. She called Clark, he came home, and he called Heath. And as they sit in Heath's office, weeping, someone needs to ask the question, now what? Now what? Are we equipped to contend with this? Are we equipped to deal with this? Is this beyond our reasoning? Is this beyond our understanding? Biblical process of change, essential number two. Counselors must listen long. Counselors must listen long. To call the, the call to everyone in James 1.19 is to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is part of the creed of biblical counseling, and certainly just being a pastor or elder. But it's also a necessity just of being a good friend, let alone a brother or sister in Christ. We must listen, and we must listen well. Second, there are things to listen for. Specific words, the lack of other words. We're keen on relationships and, and value judgments. And we're keen on truth claims. What is the truth? What do you believe the truth is? We're listening for words and for a tone, a tone of repentance. Has God brought this person in because of 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that why the Lord brought them in today? What about Clark and Sarah? Have you heard it from them? Is there repentance on the table? Just the facts alone tell us an incredible story about their hearts. The, the fact that Sarah would willingly recall these thoughts that she and Clark showed up in his office office, and they started talking about these things. She is actively bringing shame on herself and potential for condemnation. Are we starting to see something biblical about this? What kind of heart makes for these confessions? Well, ultimately, we'll see. We'll see. Also, since we're talking about it, if, what if there is no confession of sin? What if there is no repentance? You don't have a person who's broken well, then you do, this, this becomes an evangelistic session. This turns into evangelism 101. And you talk about Christ crucified, the Savior of the world. But if I have someone in my office who says that they're a Bible-believing Christian, then I believe God has help and answers for them. This other person needs Christ. 
This person over here, the Christian, you can talk with and you can move them. Why? Because you believe the power of the Holy Spirit inside of them can be excited and stirred on by the Scripture. You believe that there, there's ideas and understandings that they have that are lacking and those need to be torn down and right thinking and right biblical theology needs to be tacked into place. We believe there's help. So we give the gospel if the person is not saved. So there's two essentials to the process so far that you've seen. Knowing sin, you've got to know sin, and you've got to know the breadth and depth of sin. And you have to listen long. Back to Clark and Sarah. They're sitting in Pastor Heath's office. They've made these incredible admissions about terrible thoughts. Throwing babies to their death for crying? Suicide? Clark was rightly scared. And Sarah, she was terrified as well. Though she didn't feel a strong bond with Zoe, she didn't want to hurt her. She knew her anger was damaging her relationship with Clark as well. They began pouring out their hearts to Clark. And now, after filling the room with all these ideas and thoughts, they sat waiting for his verdict. What's Heath going to say? There seemed to be an immense pressure in the room. What would this pastor say to the, to the terrible thoughts that Sarah had presented? Was she a totally insane woman? Was she an unfit mother? Was she even a Christian? They're probably sitting in his office thinking, Pastor, you can tell me I'm, pra- I'm crazy, but please don't kick me out of this place. Please offer me something. We've come to see you. Give me something. They began searching Heath's face. They thought they would see a look of shock disbelief, even anger. That's when Heath said to them, Oh, Sarah, I'm so sorry. It sounds like the last few weeks have been terribly difficult. I want you to know how sorry I am, but I also am encouraged that you came in for help. You know what? I think we can help. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10.13. You know, as you think about Heath's words there, can you feel the room just deflate? Can you feel the immensity of the weight of the shame and the guilt that they've expressed just vaporize and just go out all the cracks and crevices of that room? Can, can you sense the embarrassment running away? Can you sense all forms of awkwardness being put to rest? You know, Sarah had cried when she was telling her story. And now she and Clark begin to cry together. But this crying was vastly different because it was marked with relief. It was a crying filled with relief. Heath shared this verse with them, 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you may be able to endure. If you've ever had terrible thoughts, you need to know this verse. If you've ever been so mad you wished someone would die, you need to have this verse. If you are aware of the evil that exists in your heart and in your mind, you need to have this verse. 
Sarah needed the hope provided by these words from Scripture. No man's words do in this instance. She needs to hear from God. And i got to tell you that hope is the business of the biblical counselor. Hope is the business. And that's where we get to point three in the process of change. Essential number three is give hope. Give hope. I'd have you turn to Romans 5.2. We must give hope to the faint-hearted. I'm not talking about man's type of hope where you think something good will happen. This is the kind of situation that requires certain hope. Certain hope. Certain hope that is God-sized hope, built on his promises and even his person, his nature. Jay Adams puts it this way. He says, hope in the scriptures always is a confident expectation. The word hope never carries even the connotation of uncertainty in the Bible. Jay Adams gets this from Paul in Romans. After completing his case for justification before God by faith alone, does Paul lack certainty in Romans 5, 2 regarding hope? Let's read this and see if Paul lacks certainty here. He says this in verses 5, 1, and 2. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. We exult in hope of the glory of God. Paul is confident and he is certain of his existence and of why he's going through all the trials and challenges that he is. Because his job is to exult in hope in the glory of God. That is a challenge for all of us at all times. Tonight, tomorrow when you walk into your workplace, and then tomorrow evening when you walk home and you have a dirty house. Do you believe in the scriptures? Do you actually believe in the accuracy and the truth of scriptures? Before you dispense information to others about truth and about God and about Jesus, do you know with certainty the things of which you speak? Know with certainty, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is of a matter of one's in private interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You know 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. I would add to this list Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Certainty for the biblical counselor, certainty for the Christian comes from the scriptures. To know the scriptures, to have certainty is to know the scriptures. I would even say this to you. The amount of the scriptures that you know has a direct impact on the amount of hope that you can give. The amount of impact bears weight with how much scripture you know on how well the Lord is able to use you to impact lives. Know the scriptures. You know, Sarah's going to need this kind of certainty for this next phase of life that comes. 
because she's going to be asked to go see a medical doctor. And I'm kind of launching ahead in the story a little bit here, but as she goes to see the medical doctor, you know what they're going to find is that they're not able to run her tests for her on the day that she goes in. But it didn't stop the doctor from telling her that she needed to go see a psychiatrist. And further, the doctor told her that if she didn't start seeing a therapist, he would be obligated to call Child Protective Services. She mentioned already to the, counselor, to, the, to the doctor that she's been seeing counselors, and thankfully she didn't hear from that doctor again. But now she's got the threat that because of the things that she's expressed, that someone might be after her to take her kids. That you can't have those kind of thoughts and keep your kids. Somebody's going to report that and make that take, be taken away from you. You know, this is real in the world in which we live. There is, there's a perfect secular label that goes over the top of these symptoms that Sarah's experiencing. Say them with me. Postpartum depression, right, postpartum depression, or postpartum psychosis. And again, we've talked about labels before. Is there anything wrong with a label to identify different aspects of behavior? No, that's fine. I understand the label. I want to go into understanding how God thinks about those symptoms of behavior and what God says about those symptoms. I want to diagnose. I want to offer help. Thank you for labeling Now let's have someone who knows God speak to that life. Does that make sense? So here's this label that Sarah's experiencing. And Heath Lambert reports in the the book, he reports having seen a physician place a young woman in a psychiatric hospital after merely looking over her answers on a questionnaire. The threats that she's facing are real. There is CPS. There is the psych hospital. And you would want hope and certainty as well from someone who said they had answers from you for a course of action. You want certainty that will not bring about these type of circumstances, the loss of your child or time in a psych ward. So getting back to Clark and Sarah, Heath needed to take action. He needed to get action from them and see action from them. These two were in a desperate situation, and Heath's office took on kind of an emergency room mentality. Number one, keep the patient calm and make them believe they will live. Number two, put together a strategic plan for immediate needs and long-term care. And so he began to think about these things. After carefully listening to Clark and Sarah, Heath offered hope. All the while, Heath was strategically planning a healing process for them. The situation demanded Immediate action, long-term care. Sarah hadn't slept good in days, and she looked exhausted. How beneficial would it be to confront her about her anger at this moment? Not going to help, right? She's going to miss a lot of that conversation. Heath needed to show care for the person named Sarah. Biblical counseling understands well how the physical works with the spiritual, how these two things interact And sufficient for today was to give Sarah spiritual hope and physical rest. Heath made the request, even demands of Clark and Sarah. Their first bit of homework would be highly practical. They needed to complete these actions. First, Sarah was off duty until tomorrow's meeting, off duty. Her job was to get rest and eat. No getting up with the baby in the middle of the night. No feeding the baby. They'd already worked out the feeding of the baby, the schedule there. These tasks now fell on dad, on Clark. Second, Clark was to call work and tell them, I'm not coming in tomorrow. It was time to take a day off. We'd reached critical mass at home. His presence was required in his house. 
He would be needed for cleaning, diaper changing, doing laundry, getting things caught up. He needed to man up to this challenge. Better yet, he, he needed to be serving his wife and daughter practically, demonstrating care and concern for them. You know, also, by doing this, the baby then would be physically separated from Sarah, right? Sarah's over here, baby's over there. We want to make sure that there's no other thoughts that are going to continue to brew up. We want to put some separation there for a brief period of time, a necessary period of time. Third, Clark would need to arrange for a babysitter for the next day. The next meeting would happen only after Sarah had a full night's rest, good food, and was mentally prepared to talk about life. Heath went into quarterback mode, and he began calling these plays. And that takes us to step number four in the essentials for understanding the biblical process of change. Provide instruction that leads the way. Provide instruction that leads the way. These people came for help, and now it was time to respond. This is where biblical counseling gets extremely practical. Practical wisdoms, practical solution, practical instructions. Because at the end of the day, I want you to be able to say, hey, Oliver's a reasonable guy. He's a reasonable guy. By formulating a plan in his mind of critical and long-term issues, Heath was able to offer immediate, clear, practical instruction. And by offering hope and scripture, Keith gained credibility in their lives. And then he put that credibility to the test by tasking them, by giving them practical instruction. Go do these things. Now that you've heard me talk about scripture, talk about how much hope there is, and talk about a big God who can fix these things, I need you to go do these things. Practical instruction was required here. Now, Heath is a man who understands how exhausted this woman was. He understands exhaustion. So the game plan was practical. Sarah gets rest. Clark steps up to the table. It's so good and necessary for both of them because men like tasking and women like to get rest (laughs) because women are usually working pretty hard. However, Heath did not take a break. He had more practical solutions to employ. And immediately after Clark and Sarah left his office, Heath picks up the phone. He's got two phone calls to place. The first phone call goes out to Sherry. Because you see, in the church, we have these people called super saints. Now, many of them are sitting in the audience tonight. And these super saints, they're men and women that just get stuff done. They see problems and they fix them. They ask for work and then they get it done quickly. And then they're the ones that are asking for the phone calls for the additional work that they can get to get more tasking. He calls Sherry. Sherry had just been the one who organized two weeks of meals for Sarah. So the task is, we need another two weeks of meals. And without questioning, she jumps right on that. But she goes over the top and she says, hey, is there any opportunity that I might be able to get a group of folks over to clean the house? And Heath says, hey, I like the way you think. Yeah, let's, let's see about doing that. Maybe we can help out with the laundry or the cleaning. The second phone call goes to the boss. No, not the senior pastor. I wouldn't call Eric. I would call my wife, the boss. And I would ask her, like Heath did here, he asked Lauren, his wife. Heath called his, his wife, Lauren, and he said, hey, I've got a gal, and her name's Sarah, and she's got challenges. Can you come alongside of her? Can you consider spending time mentoring Sarah, this new mother in our church? Heath would meet Sarah and Clark the next day, and he would continue to minister to them by counseling. But these two phone calls would do some incredible ministering of their own. All of these sources of ministering were necessary for Clark and Sarah. And that gets us to point five. 
Point five, the essential number five of the biblical counseling process of change. Deliver help to the needy. Deliver help to the needy. And if you'll notice, points four and five are the practical solutions. From practical wisdom to practical needs. Take a look at Ephesians 4.12 with me. Turn to Ephesians 4.12. Why did Heath call Sherry and Lauren, his wife? Why not just call Domino's and ask him to deliver pizzas for the next two weeks? Why not pay for a professional self-image coach or a personal trainer for Sarah? You know, certainly there's somebody that'll want to, you know, take the money to come alongside somebody and whoop them up into shape. Maybe that's what she needs. The reason why he didn't do that is because God wants the hands of his people involved in the doing of ministry. And because Heath is under divine mandate to let these women serve one another, to let them serve one another. Ephesians 4.12 says that pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets were given to the church for, you see that in verse 12, for what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the work of service. Who does the service? Who does the work of service? Well, it's right there. The saints are the ones that do the work of service. Heath is under divine mandate. Look at what it's, look at the rest of the verse. Look at how beautiful this is. To the building up of, of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Where did Heath want to send Lauren and Sherry? Heath wanted to send Lauren and Sherry to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Do you see that? He was interested in ushering Sherry and Lauren, his wife, and the woman coordinating the meals to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ by giving them the opportunity to serve. Plus, Domino's Pizza is terrible. (laughs) The hands of the church are the source of many practical solutions. The result of the practical instruction was Sarah went home and slept for 12 hours. She felt relieved because she had been told by her pastor that she had permission to take a break. You know, she's only human, just like you and me. and She requires sleep, and, and he saw that. So the practical instruction worked well and was well received. However, we didn't have the same response, not quite the same response, when the practical needs began to be met. Upon the next meeting, Heath let Sarah and Clark know that he had requested more help from Sherry and, and from his wife. And instead of being grateful, Sarah seemed uncomfortable. She said the help was proof that she was an unfit mother. What do you need here? Well, what did, we, what did he give him the first time? Practical wisdom. And then he was going to meet practical wisdom with practical help. And now in giving practical help, you hear unbiblical ideas. And so what do you need to give again? Practical wisdom. Do you see how these things? Practical wisdom, practical help, practical wisdom. And so he did. He shared with her practical knowledge and instruction again. You see, there's two kinds of women in the Bible. The older experienced and the younger less experienced. And the one is to train the other. The one is to train the other. Sarah's maternal love does not mean that she has maternal skill. You must learn to be a good mother. It's a skill that you develop. And that's what the older women in the church are for, to train the younger women. Sarah didn't quite have that figured out in her mind. And she needed to, because that idea needed to be crushed. There's a little pride whooped up underneath that idea. 
when they finally received both the practical wisdom and the practical needs being met, stability returned to their home. And I would ask you this at this point. You've delivered practical wisdom and you've delivered practical help. Is Heath's work done? Are we finished here? The house is stable. The house is stable. Is Heath's work done? This is a big, big part because the story just keeps going. Heath's work is not done. In fact, it had only just begun. If he were to quit right now, you might see short-term fruit from these people, from Clark and Sarah. But long-term, there would be greater and uglier messes. Why? Why would there be greater? Why can I look down the road of their lives and see greater and uglier messes? Because root heart issues would have compounded further because they would have been left unaddressed. And trust me, there's three things that need to be looked at. Two of them for Sarah. Two heart issues need to be tackled. First, how was Sarah handling suffering? Second, what was the source of her sinful anger? And let's take a look at her understanding of suffering. Turn back again to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We read verses 1 and 2. I want to go right back to Romans 5. We'll have Paul finish his thought. Uh, Consider this. Sarah had just given birth. She has a two-week-old baby in the house. And with great certainty, we can all say that Sarah has experienced suffering, right? (laughs) I think this is the case. We understand this. She's exhausted. She's experienced suffering. However, does Sarah know suffering? Does she know suffering? Does she know biblical suffering? The answers to these questions can be directly correlated to how well she knows the gospel. I hope you can see the connection between the two. Do you know suffering? Maybe, maybe not, a little wishy-washy. Tell you what, let's talk about the gospel. Let's put that into its proper place in your life. That brings us to biblical process of change, essential number six. Explain the gospel. Explain the gospel. Because if you explain the gospel accurately, you come to this part where Christ came to suffer on purpose. Romans 5, carrying on, look at the end of verse 2. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. You know, does Sarah really want this suffering? Does she really want tribulations? Does she really want the glory of God? Does she exult in her tribulations? Does she see how the trials and tribulations of of her life have been uniquely designed and outfitted for her personally? Does she realize how much her repentance and her, her response to these trials matters? Job says this, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job's a great example, right? Because Job's suffering didn't come from personal sin. And you couldn't, you couldn't even necessarily say that it was from the effects of the fall, from the curse. 
It was God-given. Peter has a thought on suffering. 1 Peter 1, verse, or chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says, What credit is it if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? What credit is that? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For all for, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. You see, we are called as Christians to suffering. We're called to this. You know, the best question when it comes to suffering is, how can this suffering, how can this illness be used to glorify God? That's the question we're after. Now you're on to something. Imagine if you're standing at the well of life and, and you drop in a bucket. You drop in a bucket of your questions. The, the wrong questions will draw up zero water. The wrong questions will drop, up, will drop zero water for you. But on this question, on this question, how can this illness be used to glorify God? If you use that bucket to go down into this well, the well of living water, you will draw up buckets of living water from that question. It's only this question. How can my illness be used to glorify God that holds any water at all? This is the question. How can it be used to glorify God? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, what does it say? Do it all to the glory of God. Sarah did learn these lessons. She learned to call out to God in times of trouble and to trust God fully to respond. And better yet, she learned that with great certainty, God was in every moment of her suffering. This is why you explain the gospel accurately. Because a lot of Christians don't understand that whole suffering aspect of our Savior. He was looking for a, a joyful response from her and ultimately he found it. She, re, she repented of her, of her sin. But was she done with counseling? No, we have to go to step number two or point number two for her. There was another heart issue that needed to be dealt with with Sarah. She understood suffering now, but there was still attention that needed to be given to Sarah's sinful anger and her sinful responses. They had to be addressed. Heath Lambert reminds us that the, the Bible teaches that sinful anger is a spiritual problem before it's an emotional or physical problem. It doesn't matter how physically weakened you may be. God is looking at your heart. And it's not enough to come up with the right actions. You can have all kinds of external actions. It's, it's the heart that God's looking at. He wants to own the heart. He wants to see that from the heart you truly love him. You see, Sarah had confessed to Heath these things. She had a difficult relationship with her mother growing up. Her mother was a drunk and often a bad temper. In fits of rage, her mother and her would begin blows and throwing stuff at each other. And Sarah picked up this pattern of behavior. Her, her life was marked with severe fighting, yelling, throwing things. And she called this the dark side of her personality. But when she married Clark, these things evaporated. And it was only when Zoe broke the peace that was the relationship she had with Clark that Sarah reverted to patterns and habits that hadn't been dealt with. They were kind of lying down there in the past. It just kind of got glossed over. So what must she do? Repent. Yes, repent. Go back to the process of peace that I had you put on your hand, on, on the back of your page. She's got, you know exactly where she's at. She needs to repent. She needs to confess these things. But I, as we close up our time here, I want to finish these things up. Heath 
is another target that Heath had another target that he wanted to point out. So we've addressed her sinful anger, we've addressed her suffering, but Heath needs to confront Clark. Clark was not going to get a pass in this relationship. It wasn't just Sarah that needed to be confronted. What about Clark's behavior that needed to be addressed? Clark had apathy to his wife's condition. So Heath made this comment to Clark. He said this, You know, Clark, I wonder how you missed all of Sarah's struggling going on right under your nose. I wonder how you missed all of Sarah's struggling going on right under your nose. You know, that comment just cut Clark deep. He began to confess his own selfishness. You know, he had chalked up life and the things going on to a phase that Sarah was going through and Zoe needing mom, not dad for this period of time. But he realized his thoughtlessness was culpable for a good portion of their problems. Each ultimately repented before God for their sins. Each received the forgiveness of God and then they turned to one another. They, they took care of the vertical and then they went horizontal and they made this relationship right. It's such a powerful demonstration of what God can do. This brings us to biblical process of change, essential number seven. Confront sin to destroy pride. Confront sin to destroy pride. All of pride is an affront to the glory of God. Error, ignorance, bitterness, anger, all of these don't conform to the righteous standard of God. So we're commanded, even demanded, that all men repent, all men everywhere repent in Acts 1730. You know, there's great clarity about repenting. In, in Matthew 18, church discipline, you understand well. It's, it's done for restoration. It's done in obedience to Christ. It's done to the glory of God. But I want you to consider this. Church discipline is what puts teeth into counseling. You know, what would happen if Sarah never dumps her anger? What would happen if, if Clark continued his selfishness and his apathy? Would that bode well for their relationship moving forward? What takes a beating if neither of the two of them repent, what takes a beating? Their marriage, their lives, their testimonies, their family, the name of Jesus Christ, the church, the glory of God, all these things take a beating. So some man at some point in time must step in and say, this is not right. A reasonable man with a reasonable and patient voice, with gentleness, considering himself first, must be willing to step in and say, this is not okay. Because I know the righteous standard of God, and this doesn't meet it. You know, that's essentially what happens in step four of church discipline. It's as if someone, it's as if the elders of the congregation are standing before someone and saying, before God Almighty, from the perspective of our elders, with our congregation as witnesses, we are telling you that you are not in the faith. Repent. Trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from your wicked ways. You know, believers in, in Christ must act like him. They, we do not conform to the patterns of this world. We're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. It's our greatest joy and our greatest challenge to be able to counsel someone. These are, these are the essentials that it takes. Knowing sin, listening long, giving hope, providing instruction, delivering help, explaining the gospel, Confronting sin. I would remind you that they're not prescriptive. They're not in a plug-and-play order. There's no linear fashion to what I presented to you tonight. They come out that way, and, and they, often, they often might work that way. You know, these are two believers in Jesus Christ, Clark and Sarah. 
They repented. They turned. And they're living a healthy life before God. You go back to how hopeless this situation was when it started and how the world wanted to step in and offer its own solutions. But God has his own solutions too, doesn't he? And it's when we dive in and we experience and and chase after God and his righteousness that all these other things of this life are added unto us. That's where I want to put our minds in regard to biblical counseling. You know, uh, there's there's one other point I, I want to make here. What's the heart of the person that would come to the counselor and say, I don't know what to do. Will you help me? What's the first person? What's the first thing you know about that person's heart? This is exactly correct. Humility. Let's pray that humility comes over all of us. Father God, we're so thankful for this time and for an opportunity to understand your word and how it affects our lives and how this truth so profoundly impacts every person in this world. Lord, there is hope with you alone. Left to themselves, the world will sit and spin on their problems and their sins until you come back and judge them for it. But with your word, we have the opportunity to offer the grace of God, incredible hope through our Savior. Lord, I pray that this time that we've spent talking about biblical counseling would do just that, that these things would sit well in our hearts and minds, not only for our own life and for our own edification, to make us better believers in Christ, but that we might be able to use what we know to offer it to the hurting lives around us, particularly in this season. Lord, let these things sit well with us and let us all find more and more humility. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.